It's June 21st. Today's episode of Real Talk is presented by our partners at Bitcoin Well. It's become this weekend tradition every single time that I cross paths with somebody. Like, well, the first thing people want to talk about now is the, is the Jespo Pisco Sour, the beer. I'm not going to lie to you. But the second thing that people want to talk about when we cross paths for the first time in a long time is crypto. It was El Salvador again this week, and I run into a buddy. He's like, what the hell is going on in El Salvador? What does this mean about Bitcoin? And I was like, man, don't you listen to the beginning of the show every single day? If you have questions about this type of thing, you're supposed to get in touch with the team at Bitcoin Well. That's what they do. They help people understand crypto, and they can do the same for you. Just check them out under the very top of the sponsors page at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, a good Monday morning to you. Uh, It's not just any Monday morning. It is National Indigenous Peoples Day, and we've got a wonderful show in store in in just a few moments. We're going to be checking in uh, with a panel, uh, a panel. This is a really interesting new initiative, the Office of Indigenous Languages. Uh, There are implications for passports. There are implications for uh, government ID, but it's more than that. It's bigger picture than that. And we're going to be talking uh, to a couple of guests coming up from that office uh, as part of our coverage this morning. Very much looking forward to checking in with Chef Andrew George Jr. Uh, Chef George participated in the first all-Indigenous team at the Culinary Olympics. How cool is this? In Frankfurt, Germany, was head chef at the four-host First Nations Pavilion at the 2010 Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver. So this guy uh, has an unbelievable history. Uh, we're going to learn more about what fuels his his process, his creative process, and what a day like National Indigenous Peoples Day means to him. We're going to be talking about restorative justice as well, coming up in about an hour and 20-ish minutes from now. So the show will move and, of course, prompted by your comments as well. Uh, we have our I know our live audience is going to be joining us. We, we, were, we were a little late into the game this morning. We showed up. We didn't show up. Gosh, everybody showed up early this morning. But, but there were some there were some glitches. There were some gremlins in the mix. And uh, our team snapped into action. Uh, but, of course, if, if you were here hanging on, you, you know, I, I saw some of you that that uh, chime in regularly. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Sarah Hoyles, the producer of this show, there's almost, as we see, a bit of a competition. There seems to be. It's a friendly competition. This Just is friendly, a, friendly, friendly, th- friendly. This is a very uh, niche um, an incredible element of our greater real talk audience. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my, my version, if I was a real talker as opposed to the host, I'd be the guy where it would download onto my podcasts and I would I would roll out of bed if I possibly could. This would be my style. Roll out of bed around 11 o'clock, maybe 1030 <laughs> on an early day. You know, the, 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 wait, you know, the podcast shows up around one, decide to walk the dogs around two, maybe, maybe four, maybe, maybe five. It's, the day's going to be like sunny and hot and, and, you know, you don't want to have the pups out that early. So I'd probably, I'd probably listen to the show around like four o'clock or around okay. like five okay. o'clock. That'd be maybe my style. There, there's this, there's this, this pocket of absolute beauties. They're in the mix every single morning and, and not just like, not, not right on time, but early they want, to be, they want to be the first ones in the live chat. And today, I think it was messing with everybody because the competition was, uh, was hindered, quite frankly. And so we had a lot of people chomping at the bit. And they started chiming in on Twitter being like, hey, is it just me or do you guys have the same? Uh, What's going on here? I like it. It's on? very engaged audience. Very engaged audience. When you see, if you are watching us on YouTube as opposed to listening to the podcast, 
Um, when you see this font that comes up underneath me here with my name and my Twitter handle and everything, you're going to notice there's a, there's there's something a little bit different right now. Oh, maybe not on here now. Oh, now I get we're, we're reminding everybody I have an Instagram. That's what we're doing on my font right now. But Sarah, we have an announcement to make regarding dun, 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 dun. a new Twitter account. Would would you like to make the huge announcement? The huge announcement is we have our very special Twitter account that is now for the show. Brand new. Brand spanking new. And it is. The handle is Real Talk RJ. So it's so, just like our hashtag. Same as our hashtag. So Real Talk RJ. Nice and easy to find. Nice and easy to follow. Um, for purposes of, of, of the boosting of our own self-esteems, uh, we would love to see it at a couple thousand followers by you know tomorrow. That would be great. You know, we start at zero with something like this, but we realize that that my personal Twitter is uh, let's what's what's really happening here is that um, I'm trying to absolve myself of work and I'm trying to add more work to <laughs> delegate. Your, I believe I, is the word you're looking for. I, I believe the word I'm looking for is leadership. I'm trying to demonstrate <laughs> synergy. I'm trying to do leadership synergy and thinking outside the box with our new Twitter account. So give us a follow at Real Talk RJ. That's where you'll be able to see show highlights every morning. That's where we'll be announcing who's coming up on the show, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, there, so there's a lot going on there uh, behind the scenes with the team, making sure that we can continue, uh, that we can continue to bring you the content that you're looking for. Um, so <laughs> it's Monday in a big way. And uh, I want to give a shout out to our team that's been working uh, behind the scenes. It's it's now when you hear this later on the podcast, it's going to be all neatly edited and tied together. And you're not going to realize that there's been this frenzied sort of a start to our broadcast week here. It's 25 minutes after we typically go on the air and we've been experiencing a number of really interesting technical glitches, sort of like one and then another and then another. And they're all compounding. And I'm really proud of the team here and how everybody's been working uh, to get us back on the air. So here's the thing. Uh, it, it seems to me this is this is a really interesting start. And so I, I'm going to freewheel for a little bit uh, because what's happened is we're experiencing technical difficulties that are that are hitting us not only on our broadcast platforms, so to speak. Though this is always situations like these are always a great opportunity for us to remind you that if things go sideways, for example, on YouTube, you can always live stream our audio on Mixler, M-I-X-L-R. You can just download the app. You look for Real Talk Ryan Jesperson. You can subscribe. That's how we know uh, a whole bunch of people every single morning will live stream us audio, whether it's it's on their commute or whether they're on a road trip or whatever. So Mixler is always a great backup. Um, but what's going on is is we've had some of our platforms interrupted this morning, and that's including our ability to host guests, including our ability to bring guests in. And so on a day like today, and I'm laughing so I don't cry, it's National Indigenous Peoples Day, and Sarah's done just a remarkable job putting a, a formidable lineup together. And and uh, obviously some of those interviews aren't going to happen today, which is really disappointing for us. Uh, we're going to get Dr. Michael Hart back on the show. He's Vice Provost for Indigenous Engagement at the University of Calgary. We're going to talk about what indigenization means, what that looks like. Um, we're also hoping, uh, and we're not giving up on this interview quite yet, we're hoping to speak with Georgina Liberty and Robert Watt from Canada's new Office of Indigenous Languages. They're two of the first appointees to the Office of the Commissioner of Indigenous Languages. We're going to learn more about what Canada is doing as a nation in the early stages under the direction 
of uh, Minister Mark Miller. That coming up a little later today. We're still holding out hope that we're going to be able to get our tech stuff all figured out. So I'll be able to check in with Chef Andrew George Jr. We're going to talk about the joy of cooking and culture and tradition and how that fits in or how his uh, process as a chef and as a creator, a celebrated creator, an international uh, competitor when it comes to things like the Culinary Olympic Games, etc., how his indigenous background and how a day like today, National Indigenous Peoples Day, fits or factors into his process as a culinary creator. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And we'll talk restorative justice. We intend to talk about it today uh, with Jessica Buffalo, and that'll be coming up, you know, we expect in approximately an hour. But shows like these are also an opportunity where, so so we're figuring out things on the fly, right? And, and if our team members right now were not, uh, a scrambling is not the right word, but they are diligently uh, and and they are hyper focused on the task at hand. And we're figuring out what to do. And I said, just throw me on the air. Um, the teeth and hair can take over and talk for a while 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 the experts behind the scenes get the show back on track. And you know what I see this as? I see this as a bit of a gift today. And I see it as a bit of a reminder to us that that sometimes you know, the voices that, that really matter, voices that are very important as parts of uh, or elements of conversations around truth and reconciliation, around what National Indigenous Peoples Day means, around what Canada Day, Canada Day means coming up in, in uh, what is it, I guess about a week and a half from now. It's the 21st of June today. Um, the, these conversations a lot of times, um, I think, lack what we would call in the, in the news business streeters. And streeters are when a, a reporter will be sent out, and you know how it goes, right, to go out on Robson Street in Vancouver. Or Blue, you know, they want to go be out, you know, uh, on Dundas in Toronto, or maybe, maybe if you're in Calgary, you want to send a, a camera uh, down to Kensington or Stephen Avenue on a hot summer day. And so you just talk to people about what they think about whatever, whether it's fluoride in the water or a referendum on equalization or National Indigenous Peoples Day. Walk down somewhere where there's a whole bunch of pedestrian traffic, put microphones in front of everyday folks and, and, and invite them to have their say and to fuel our perspective and to enrich our perspectives uh, with these types of exercises like streeters. And so today we're going to treat it like that. We're, it, it looks as though right now, like we might have a little bit more time than we normally do to be able to monitor our live chat and interact with it, to be able to have more relaxed and, and free-flowing and open-ended and exploratory conversations about what a day like today means to you. And so, you know, I'd like right now, I mean, I'm going to be paying keen attention to our live chat as well as our hashtag on Twitter. That's Real Talk RJ. And a reminder that our new Twitter account is out there at Real Talk RJ. So we have the hashtag and the handle now. Um, we'll be paying attention to that. And I'd invite you to let us know what, what National Indigenous Peoples Day means to you. Brenda's also saying, you know, wishing everybody a happy first day of summer. I mean, today is summer solstice. Was it, or is it, I never really know how, I, I, I suppose, I mean, what's unfortunate is that there's not just this, this wealth. Imagine if there was like a thing where I could just type in a question, it would give me an answer. Um, unfortunately, something like that doesn't exist. I suppose I could have put in the three seconds to do the research on this. <laughs> But instead, I will ask our producer, Sarah Hoyles. Oh, perfect. I love that. Summer solstice. Was that last night going into? It's tonight, right? It was last night going into tonight, or is it tonight going into tomorrow? I think it's tonight going into tomorrow, because the 21st is the longest day of the year, right? 
So this we will have the most daylight today of any day in the calendar year. Oh, geez, yeah. Louise. So, so I think we say today is summer solstice. The summer solstice is traditionally a festive day associated with the beginning of early dawns, late sunsets, and shorter nights. But I do think that, see, now here it's showing. Um, I used the World Wide Web. And, it, you know, summer solstice, otherwise known as estival solstice or midsummer, it occurs when one of the Earth's poles has its maximum tilt toward the sun, and that is summer solstice 2021, Sunday, June 20th. So I do believe that it was last night into today, but I might be wrong. So today's the first day of summer. So that from Brenda as well. So does that come with, like, does, is, is there a, a sense of renewal or something? Is there a sense, is there something that happens? Is a sense of renewal or something. I love well, no, that. But psychologically, because typically if you're going to say a sense of renewal, people would say it would be in the spring. Mm. I think like when all when the things new, come alive, you know, the daffodils and the tulips are coming up and there's the buds on the trees. But I don't know, like this when you say, you know, the first day of summer I always or, think, or summer solstice, is that? Yeah. I mean, there's always North Country Fair, which I would go to. It'd be like, right. This is the mark of the start uh, of the summer. Yeah. Um, North Country Fair is a music festival, which is just like it's an all it's an all nighter. For multiple nights. Yeah. Well, that's the whole point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the whole point yeah. of a well, music Well, there's lots festival? of light, so why why the heck not? Yeah. No, I agree. Are are you, uh, when it comes to the summer, are you, are, is there anything, um, quote unquote, this word becomes, it seems more and more loaded every time you use it. Oh, I'm interested to know what this word is it's now. Not that, it's not, it's, it's actually a super boring word. By design, the irony is that the word normal can be so explosive these days because yes. people say there's never there's no normal. And what is normal? And who are you with your normative? You know, but will there be any return to, quote, normal for you this summer? Is there anything going on that that, you know, people are coming back? I mean, aside from the calorie stampede, it seems to me like be the only example of anything I can think of that would be a return to, quote, unquote, normal. Hmm. The super spreader event in waiting. Yeah. Just wait. Um. No, I'm I'm truly not going back to normal. Um, Ever? Well, for the summer, no. Um, I also like I'm just I've just started watching on social media like how different events are happening and people are live tweeting it and I'm un- I'm extremely uncomfortable with going back to normal because normal wasn't working. Yeah. And it's just a huge it's just a whole bunch of distraction from what really matters. In my in my experience, like for me, that's that's what the pandemic has given me. And I'm 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 wanting to kind of almost bottle and keep uh, very closely close to my heart what the pandemic has given me. I'm scared that I'm going to lose it. Hmm. You're scared to be honest. No, that's a, that is an honest answer. <laughs> I was thinking about it. I'm we, terrified. We, we were talking about this as a, as a family. And I know that. um well, Carrie and I feel a little bit different about this because I can't wait, quite frankly, to go back to uh, hosting events with thousands of people uh, with all kinds of mixing and mingling. And, and, and I just am so excited about that. It is going to feel strange at first. Will but, you be shaking hands? Oh, uh, well, if I'm double vaxxed and everybody's, I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, are you kidding me? I'll Hugging? Be, yeah. hundred percent. Absolutely. hundred percent. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I'm, I'm, I'm no all judgment. T- Sorry, the wow was not a judgment. No, the I don't, wow was he, just like a wow. But even if it is a judgment, that's okay. I mean, everyone will be different on this. Mm. Some people are gonna, some people will continue to wear masks. All, you know, I, 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 I was telling you this before. I mean, I've found a certain kind of a security and like security is not the right word, but like kind of a lug. Like I, I like being incognito. I like, I like wearing a mask, grocery shopping. I like some of that stuff. I feel like people these days. Like people moving forward, 
and I want to get back on track talking about National Indigenous Peoples Day, but but this is I feel like some people like now culture will change. Like we talk, we take a look at like you know some Asian cultures where for years and years and years and years and years, if you had the sniffles, first of all, you probably wouldn't go out. Second of all, if you did, you'd wear a mask out of consideration to other people. Yes, imagine that. So uh, <laughs> you know maybe, maybe those types of things will change. But yeah, once everybody's rocking and rolling, I would say you know like in my mind that would be, I don't know. Like a year from now, like yeah. when, like when we look back and say, remember that hellish 18 months, remember that. And like, hopefully our you know, favorite businesses are still open and hopefully, you know, you know, people's businesses have survived and those and are, and are getting back to some form of, you know, whatever. Uh, and people are figuring out the new landscape. I, I would hope at that point to be back to high fives and hugs. hundred yeah. percent. Not to be, you know, put a little bit of a kink in this yeah. is the idea that you know, modeling is showing that potentially pandemics are going to become more regular. Yeah. So, well, and then it's, the, it's going to be that dance that they talk about. If another one flares up, then uh, then we'll go back to not high fiving and hugging. Yeah. And uh, I sure hope so. I hope. I, I mean, I just think, you know, how many people are, you know, I just think even of Father's Day, or I think of yeah. you know birthdays and all the types of things. Um, I had a, you know the people close to us as a matter of fact in a, in a few circumstances over the past couple of weeks have lost loved ones and just the way that people are mourning these days and it's just everything is so different we're always curious to know where you're at real talkers and, and how you're sorting things out you can be in touch with us of course uh, to talk at ryanjesperson.com that's our email address and then of course you can uh, you can chime in uh, anytime on our live chat or with the hashtag real talk rj want to know you know, if if, uh, you know, today, National Indigenous Peoples Day, how are you observing it? How are you celebrating it? How are you marking it? How are you uh, wrestling with at this point some of the things that I would imagine I, I would wager a guess that a whole bunch of real talkers are wrestling with and a whole bunch of Canadians are wrestling with? I talked to a friend, a friend of mine by the name of Chris. Um, it was a private conversation, so I, I won't uh, get too much into it. But we were talking about Canada Day. And he said, you know, because we had our real talk, we've had, uh, we've been asking people our unofficial, you know, Twitter poll. And then, of course, this is our uh, question of the week this week. And you can find it at ryanjesperson.com. It's our question of the week presented by our official research and strategy partners at Y Station. If you go to ryanjesperson.com this year, we recognize that Canada Day is going to look a lot different. It's going to look different for a lot of Canadians in light of the discovery of children's bodies at former residential school sites. And in a recent question of the week, we call it our get real, get real, our question of the week, more than half of you, 54% of respondents said that you felt differently about your relationship with Canada. And then you expanded on it, many of you saying, well, you know, uh, you know you're, you're torn, you're conflicted, or you know, some of you said you're no longer going to be participating in Canada Day. Our, our unofficial Twitter poll saw about one in five people, approximately 20% of our respondents, yeah. said that they were intending on canceling Canada Day, which means that 80% intend to, at least in some way, shape, or form, still observe Canada Day. A Leger survey, a recent Leger survey of all Canadians, um, 
that's I worded that incorrectly. Obviously, not all Canadians were polled, but a late a national Leger survey posted a similar result to that question last week, which I always think is interesting. You know, when 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 our polls how they stack up, our polling how it stacks up to national numbers. So, fifty seven percent of Canadians surveyed by Leger said that their relationship with Canada has changed. Fifty four percent of real talkers. So we're wondering how will these shifts in perception change the way that you and you view and participate in Canada's national holiday coming up on July 1st. So that's our question of the week this week. Get real. We invite you to get real at RyanJesperson.com. The poll will take you about two minutes uh, and we look forward to seeing the results of that. So I'm talking, I'm texting back and forth with my pal Chris yesterday and he's wondering, you know, we're looking ahead to Canada Day. What's your summer look like? Just catching up, having a text exchange. And, and he says... Well, he references the, the restaurant in Beaumont, Alberta, a restaurant by the name of Chartier. You remember one of the owners of Chartier, uh, Darren Chevry, was on the show a while back for our hunting roundtable. Uh, Chris says, I'm not sure if you knew this, but Chartier is closing down on Canada Day to give their staff the day to reflect. He says, if that's not putting your money where your mouth and values are, I don't know what is. He says, I am also not celebrating Canada Day ever again. And it's been my favorite holiday for years. I love it. Like red and white raspberry cake in the shape of a Canadian flag. Love it. Like go to Ottawa for Canada 150. Love it. And he's decided to not celebrate again ever. He's a close friend of mine. So I guess in three or four years, I'll be interested to see if he holds to that. But I certainly don't blame anybody. I'm not surprised at all to hear from people right now that are saying this July 1st is going to be a little bit different for me. So how does National Indigenous Peoples Day factor in? I bet you, I would wager a guess that, that probably there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Canadians. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say millions of Canadians that today, for the first time ever, will actually be taking the time to meaningfully reflect on what today should mean. And so I would love to hear from you, whether it's on our live chat right now, whether it's on Twitter or you're hitting us up later today, whether it's sending us an email, whenever you feel led, whenever you've, you've, you've chewed on it and walked with it and thought about it, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Nicole says, I think we need to be brutally honest with our children. Nicole says, people like Chris Champion will attempt to teach mistruths or minimize experiences. That's a great commitment. And a good point, Chris Champion, of course, this guy that Jason Kenny hired to write the social studies curriculum for Alberta. He's a residential school denier. We've been talking about him last week. Hmm. I saw a guy by the name of Edwin Muntz tweet over the weekend, you know, Alberta used to fire teachers like Jim Keegstra, the Holocaust denier. Edwin says now we hire him to write our curriculum. We're going to get into an interview in just 30 seconds from now. I want to quickly remind you that the team at Westworld Computers is powering us up Right now, our technical glitches had nothing to do with the hardware. I can tell you that much. The team at Westworld Computers has had troubleshooting experts and service teams that basically have understood the intricacies and the ins and outs of the Apple lineup, the Macs, MacBook Pros, the iMacs, and everything else for more than 40 years. Family-owned and now taking appointments to meet with their technicians, to bring your gear in at westworld.ca. You know, of course, they also ship across Canada. They'll ship anywhere, especially if you let them know you're a real talker. You know, get that extra special white glove treatment. Just leave a note. Just say, yeah, Jespo told me something about the special treatment. 
They'll love that stuff at westworld.ca. Also want to remind you that our hashtag is powered by the team, the remarkable team at Park Power. I loved on Instagram over the weekend because I follow them. Their Instagram's fantastic. I saw their team was into the Jespo Pisco Sours, which was awesome. Park Power, real community players. They take 10% of their profits every year and put them back into nonprofits in their community. For electricity, internet, and natural gas, visit parkpower.ca and make sure you use that hashtag or rather the promo code 2021-REALTALK. They'll take $70 off your first bill. All right, let's figure out what this, uh, let's learn what this new Office of Indigenous Languages is is all about. This was an announcement made a week ago today. Indigenous people can now apply to reclaim their traditional names on passports and other government ID. Uh, Robert Watt and Georgina Liberty are directors in the Office of Indigenous Languages, and we're so grateful that they've made time for us this morning uh, my new friends, thanks for your patience through our technical glitches on this Monday, and welcome to Real Talk. Uh, Georgina, why don't we start with you? For people that have never heard of this Office of Indigenous Languages, uh, relatively new. Can you help us understand what it's all about? Sure. Well, a little bit. Um, it's brand new, of course, like you said. It was just announced on Monday. Um, it has been in the in the works for a number of years, though. It was part of the reconciliation, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation recommendations. Um, it's an office that's being created to, uh, for Indigenous peoples to revitalize, strengthen, renew, reclaim uh, Indigenous languages across the country. So this, uh, Robert, as, as an answer, I suppose, or in response to truth and reconciliation calls to action i suppose is perhaps extra significant because i think canadians have been having an important conversation over the past three or four weeks about why relatively speaking there's very little that's been done about that report would you concur with that i mean do you see this as extra important in light of the fact that there really hasn't been as strong of a response as people would have liked to see i think uh, i think that's just uh What's happening is that uh, there's a lot of other news going on right now. Um, the children that were found just before the announcement has put a lot of clout in regards to this historic uh, announcement that was made to create this office. I think it's going to be very exciting. I think it's uh, a lot of people still are going to catch up on the news and uh, are going to be pretty excited about being part of this uh, amazing journey that we're going to be part of. It's a five-year mandate for us that we're appointed, so we're very excited. We haven't met yet. We haven't sat down yet to discuss how we're going to plan and prioritize um, relating to language. So we're supposed to be starting on the 12th of July, I believe. Uh, when when we talk about National Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, we're doing uh, everything we can to gain perspectives uh, from across the country, from many different people. And I, and I would love to hear from the two of you when we talk about language, we talk about names, about the importance of that and those traditions. I should mention, Georgina, I mean, you've basically donated, I mean, you've dedicated almost your entire life to, to preserving and protecting um, your Métis identity and spirit. You've, I mean, you in your teens, my understanding is you're working as a researcher already for Manitoba Métis Federation in your teens, right? Tracing the Métis land script. You've been an active member of the Manitoba Métis Federation since 1969. You're the director of Métis Nation 2020 right now. Can, can you take us into the culture, the traditions of language, why this is so such an important initiative through your perspective? 
Well, as you know, uh, um, from my bio, I also am not a speaker of the language, even though my father was a heritage Machif speaker and an elder for our community and, and a politician uh, back in the early days. And that's part of the reason that I that I spent so much time and dedicated my life to working with the with the Métis. But um, in our culture, it's an oral tradition. It's an oral speaking language. And uh, like many of our Indigenous languages, we learned orally. It wasn't something that was written down. And so when people were busy doing whatever they were doing, it was all in the language. And unfortunately, as children uh, growing up, you know, we didn't speak our the language. The only time uh, we did hear it and often, and, and that was often, was when all of our relatives were together and my father would speak with all of his brothers and sisters and cousins and, and such. But we were, um, you know, we went to an English school. We went to a, we were in a community that didn't have a lot of uh, Métis citizens at the time. And so it was really important for me to be wherever my dad was and to be able to work um, with him and to to always be with the with our people so that i would learn uh and i learned a lot about the culture and i learned about the traditions and everything that um that pertains to our our nation except for the language and i feel very sad these days now because my dad is gone and i had the perfect teacher but i never took the time to learn well but what a remarkable opera I would imagine what a meaning a personally meaningful opportunity for you right now to participate with this new office. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm very honored and thrilled that I was, uh, you know, the person selected uh, as along with Robert and with Joan as the directors. And we have our work cut out for us over the next few years. But I think that, like Robert said, once we get to have our first couple of meetings and get started and do some planning and um, and do some talking about what we, you know, our objectives and goals will be in, in line with what the office is um, set out to do, um, I think there's going to be some really exciting things happen for us and you know we um we want to make sure that we're on the positive uh, road and that we're making solid decisions based on what we've learned from all of our indigenous communities robert when you were i mean as elected president of the avatar cultural institute uh, about 20 years ago uh, also co-director of the inuit subcommission at the truth and reconciliation commission i mean you have visited i don't know how many canadian communities my, my understanding is that you collected close to a thousand statements from residential school and intergenerational trauma survivors. Uh, what has your personal experience, as well as the experience of hearing this testimony, how has that shaped your understanding of the importance of language and names uh, in the context of truth and reconciliation? Um, just to give you an example, um, we were only uh, surnames. Surnames were introduced to our our, our society back in the 1950s, where there was a traveling, traveling RCMP, followed by Inuit and going to families uh, to fit into this family allowance system, people had to have surnames. Some surnames were written down differently in other communities, which they made uh, families not be uh, appear that they were related. So. Um, it has impacted uh, a lot of policies within Canada has impacted uh, not just our language, but everything related to our society. So what language being a big thing, um, I'm experiencing now that we have Inuit that can't speak Inuitut anymore either. We have uh, Inuit that are struggling. 
Um, so with, with, with respect to inuktitut, and we cannot uh, presume that uh, inuktitut is just one language. There's diversity within inuktitut. So I've learned a lot uh, through the TRC process and uh, a lot of people are struggling with their identity. And I believe uh, language and identity go hand in hand. Absolutely. So, Robert, do you get the sense that when it comes to uh, Inuktitut and the different uh, dialects or however you may describe it, um, do you believe that um, language or a sense of identity that may have been compromised or in some circumstances even lost, do you believe, are you confident that it can be restored? Do you see a future where young children are, are fluent and understand that language and embrace that language? Um, we have four regions within Canada, uh, four Inuit regions. Uh, within Kadavik's, within the Kadavik region, meaning within Nunavik region, we've had a school board where we've been, um, we've been securing languages. I remember when I was 10, 11 years old, uh, my language not, was not very strong either, but because of, of development of curricula for Inuktitut, um, I believe Kadavik School Board has done a wonderful job along with Avatar Cultural Institute. They've worked side by side. Um, so Inuktitut is very strong there, but um, at the same time, we have children that are going to daycare centers now. So there needs to be a strong link between daycare centers and schools, for example. So there's a lot of, of mechanisms that needs to be strengthened to allow Inuktitut to flourish once again. This initiative, with this, the formation of this new office, uh, Georgina, uh, you know, per Federal Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller says, you know, the the announcement, the formation of this office, it, it does not only respond to this, the TRC call to action uh, back in 2015, boy, that demanded governments allow survivors and their families to restore names that were changed by the residential school system. But it also it applies to all individuals of First Nations, Inuit, Métis background, potentially affecting hundreds of thousands of people who uh, would have the option uh, to aim to reclaim their identity on official documents. Where do you see this going? I mean, the significance of this, how many, how many people do you think, do you expect that there will be an, a significant response to this, individuals that will take these steps uh, for personal reasons or reasons other than that? Um, I... I believe that there will be. I believe that there are people who feel so strongly about reclaiming their names. And I think that that whole process is going to take some time. And uh, definitely those who want to uh, go through that process will make the effort and, and do what is required. Again, it's a, working within a system that's not typically ours, right? So um, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how it all rolls out and how, they, how that process unfolds with all of the different, because now you're talking about national uh, entities that um, are not familiar with, uh, with the Indigenous naming or with the in Indigenous names and how, how um, that whole process works. So it's going to be an interesting process, but I think that for sure now that it uh, has passed that people will definitely be doing that.
Can you, could, could either of you, I mean, Robert, maybe I'll put the question to you, but I invite both of you obviously to chime in on this. Can you help us understand how this would work? Um, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I think many of us are doing our best to get up to speed to understand how, I mean, let me, let me reference Kamloops. You know, as, as one example, well, pe- people talk about undocumented graves. People talk about records that were lost or not kept. Records that do exist now, it, it appears as though there's a certain hesitation to have those records released. Uh, Brent Butt, the actor from Corner Gas, said it's time to kick the doors in and take the records. Uh, I, I would be inclined to agree with him. But, but how much of a challenge or what barriers might exist for people who may say, I, quite frankly, do not know much about my family's background. I don't know what information should be on my passport other than this name that was given to me that's never really truly been mine. I mean, what does that process look like and how challenging could this be for some people? Well, from my understanding, I know that uh, the government has been collaborating and consulting with Indigenous organizations. And I, I can only imagine that they have formulated some kind of mechanism that will allow their, their people, uh, whether it's Métis, Inuit, or First Nation, to able to have a system in place that will allow them to start that journey. So for us, uh, it's now part of the Language Act to, to be looking into this. This is all new for me too, but I would, uh, I would hope that there has been proper consultation and collaboration to make this happen. That's all I could say. Mm-hmm. I agree with Robert. I think that one of the things is that we don't want to lose focus of what our our position is and what the role of the Office of the uh, Indigenous Languages is going to be. Um, but I also want to say that you know, I think that sadly, and uh, and my heart goes out to all the families who who are trying to discover if they're if, uh, if they have a family member in the in the children that were that were discovered at Kamloops. Um, sadly, this is not an uncommon story to us Indigenous people. It's a it's a it's a story to Canadians that they that they didn't hear or didn't know about or didn't see or didn't want to see, and so to us it's a it's a marking a time in, in, in space where now I think it's wonderful that Canadians are talking about it and, so, and Canadians are starting to realize that there is quite a, a you know, quite a dark history to, to all of our good. And um, like any country, we have our bad and our good. And I think that what we need to do is learn from each other and we need to learn and be educated. And that's, that's a, an important piece to, um, to our, languages to our naming to whatever we do i and i think you know it's 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 funny as you're speaking georgina you're talking about what you know the the do you call it the good and the bad or the you know the the good bad and the ugly maybe when you talk about a Mm -hmm. nation's history when you talk about a nation's relationship with indigenous people and i've and i've been sort of trying to evaluate you know things i see from individuals around me at an individual level and then things at a community level which may involve like an initiative to rename a school or perhaps an opportunity to to create some sort of a, a cultural celebration or whatever people are doing at the community level. And then there's the federal level. And, and I think at the individual level today, I'm, I'm hoping to, to wrap by asking the two of you to, to give every one of our audience members may, maybe an assignment or, or, or maybe something to think about, something to walk with today. It feels to me anyway 
like this National Indigenous Peoples mm-hmm. Day is going to be different than any other. Um, I think for for reasons again, good and bad, or let me just say for reasons that are challenging, uh, in a good way. Many people will feel great discomfort today and will feel discomfort on Canada Day, but it's prompting us to think and to act. So, Robert, what's what's an assignment for us today? What's something that you would like us, the thousands of people that will hear this podcast, what's something you would like us to walk with or think about or do today on National Indigenous Peoples Day? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> uh, I myself, um, I'm here in Ottawa, and uh, there's uh, a lot of that could potentially trigger me. Um, there's a lot of statues in particular. Um, statues of colonizers all around me. And there are days where I even took this past some kind of uh, triggers in uh, an emotion. So today I told myself that I'm going to go hug a statue today. Um, just for myself. Um, sometimes it's good to just let go, just breathe, just know that you're alive and, and, and just let go. Um, and I think today's a good day to just let go and be aware that you're part of nature, that you're part of Mother Earth. Uh, we're all the same. So uh, let's uh, forget about whether we're Inuit, First Nation, French, Japanese, whatever, we're all human. Thank you. It's beautiful, Robert. May I follow up and ask if you had your choice? Would every one of those statues come down? Do you have an opinion? You knew I had. To, you knew I was going to ask you that. <laughs> uh, I, there's a there's a, a group of ladies uh, near. Well, no, I don't think I can even go to those grounds. Uh, I'll figure one out. I, I I have one in mind. I can't say the name. But I have one in mind. If not, I'm going to end up going to that uh, statue and go give. Uh... Anyways, none of your business. <laughs> none of my business. <laughs> hey, you know what? I think that's the first time anybody's ever responded to me that way on this show, and that is a totally that is a totally valid response. And I and I and hey, the show is called Real Talk, and I love it. That's real talk right there, <laughs> Georgina. I, let, let me let me begin by asking: at risk of just being told it's none of my business, which is true. Do you have an opinion on? Because we're having this national conversation. We are about, uh, and, and and as a matter of fact, it's it's an international conversation because America wrestles with its own, uh, and and we see that around the world. Um, we, we saw the the uh, the Ryerson statue, Edgerton Ryerson statue, come down at the university a mm-hmm. few days ago. Edmonton's uh, effigy the statue of sir winston churchill had paint splattered uh, on it just a few days ago um we're seeing some schools change names uh i mean the city of saint albert north of here is wrestling with whether or not to change the name of an entire neighborhood of grandin uh, do, do you have a strong opinion on that i mean in so many ways as we're attempting to restore indigenous languages and cultures um that can that can go in a number of different ways can't it it sure can. And you know what? I, uh, I mean, personally, I, I probably, you know, our opinions are as, uh, as Robert said, it, they are our opinions. And so I don't want to state something nationally that, uh, you know, of how I feel, but I just think that, you know, learning and understanding is our key. And I think mm-hmm. that, um, when we start to, uh, 
to really recognize the the um, the history of Canada and the history of how we got to where we are. Let's learn from our mistakes. You know, take a minute in pause. You know, if you've got that negative feeling coming forward because you see something that really uh, you don't like or you think is not appropriate to Canada's um, way of life or our, you know, take a minute, pause and and learn something. Learn how other people think, how, you know, it always distresses me when I hear, you know, languages, of, uh, talking about languages, you know, you can go to a store and you can hear, and, and I don't mean this in any negative kind of way, but you can hear folks talking um, in their traditional languages, but when it comes to Indigenous people talking in their, in their languages, people take offense to that. And I find that very offending as a Canadian, as a Métis person in this country. Why, you know, we're, we're the people of the, of the land. And so why do people get offended when they hear us talking our language? Um, you know, that's just one of my things. So I just say, you know, pause a minute, take another look, breathe a little bit and, and maybe appreciate or go and find out, go and learn before Beautiful. you criticize. Go and learn. We, that, that, that should be our hashtag from today. Go and learn. I love it. I'm so grateful that the two of you made time for us today. Uh, what an important opportunity you have. And I know a meaningful one, as you've outlined for us with this Office of Indigenous Languages, Georgina Liberty, Robert Watt. We're grateful for your time. <laughs> that this is just one of 70 plus indigenous languages you've just heard. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. That's Robert Watt and Georgina Liberty, our guests on this uh, National Indigenous People's Day. It's incredible to hear that, isn't it? I. It's incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate the reminders of how many. He's like, you, you know, it's like, there's not like just one. No. But even if you're talking about Inuit, languages in like he's there, there's different dialects there there's different you remember we were talking about uh just even even last week around the kootenays around the, the former kootenay indian residential school now converted into saint eugene's which is this remarkable development resort yeah and what an amazing conversation uh a couple of them last week a couple of those conversations last week with with survivors that have just really i, I just feel like i walked through the entire afternoons and evenings just processing what we're hearing i'm so grateful that so many real talkers are along with us for the ride but just reiterating there she's saying former chief there saying uh, our language is only spoken by us in this community nowhere else in canada nowhere else in the world so you look at these knowledge keepers especially with these oral traditions and, and recognize how important it is i saw somebody on our live chat essentially say you snuff out a language or you lose a language you lose culture period right? yeah language is culture culture is language yeah and I just really appreciated hearing him speak. And because when I don't know that I have ever heard that on the radio waves ever. Yeah. I mean, unless unless you're listening to. Um, I don't like I don't know how to say it, but I, I just feel like it, it gets siloed. It gets put in like these little tiny boxes and it's just it's so neat to hear it. Yeah. Um, and I to me as the producer on the show that comes how that lands for me is that's a challenge to me to find ways to integrate it and to have it be a part of the show 365. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's part of the nation's history. It's part yeah. of, 
people's history. It's important. And this year, we recognize it in a way that I think is, is very different. I mean, you know, I've, I'm, shows that I've hosted for the past 10 or 12 years or 15 years, I mean, we have had content on National Indigenous Peoples Day, but it was always kind of like, oh, neat. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's today. Oh, okay, interesting. You know, people kind of tune in, learn a little bit. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Now I feel, it feels like a commitment. Like I've been reading, uh, you know, on our chat this morning, and, you know, people are, are just saying basically – you know, how about this from Kim says, you know, Orange Shirt Day and then National Indigenous Peoples Day and then Canada Day says there, there needs to be continuity of thought, caring and education tied to truth and reconciliation instead of disjointed days of. And I think that that's a, I think that that's a great observation. I mean, when we look at what has been stirred up and having the reckoning now around for settlers, um, around the 215 and the number is continuing to grow so the yeah like the numbers just sound so i know you want to have names or uh, lists of names the watcher says this year it feels cheap to just not have canada day but it should be somber and thoughtful mm. this year feels similar to remembrance day everybody just noticed suddenly after so long I mean, I wonder even like small steps you can take. So people are having conversations, you know, I, you know, people say, oh, well, I'm going to have my Canada Day barbecue or we're still going to gather. But but what should we do? What's something you could do? You know, what? one thing I was thinking over the weekend, I was thinking even something as 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 simple and doable as a land acknowledgement for people that may That'd have never beautiful. done that before. But like have like like take 30 seconds or five minutes you know, in between everybody getting bombed and shotgunning beers and kids having smokies and the slip and slides out and every like two to five. I mean, do whatever you like, but I'm just saying it's it's very doable and 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 it's very easy to do something as simple as to gather everyone at the at the celebration to gather your family or friends, however you're observing it and to have a moment where you acknowledge I mean, I'm not like sitting here like I have all the answers. This is just something I was thinking about over the weekend, getting everybody together and saying, hey, everyone, I know that, you know, some of you here today. Thank you. You know, John over there. Thank you, Linda over there. I see that you're wearing orange today or I noticed that orange ribbon on your whatever your orange bandana or I noticed that we acknowledge that we appreciate that. And we wanted to take a second to note that we have mixed feelings today or our hearts are bruised or we as a nation are healing or we're having important conversations and we want to acknowledge that that this barbecue you know with under 20 people following all the regulations doing everything we're supposed to do that this barbecue is occurring on treaty 6 or treaty 7 or treaty 8 you know territory the traditional gathering places of the Nakota Sioux and the Salto and the Sutina and the and like take that second to do that and I think that it's not like, is, is it going to change the world that you do that? No. Is it going to send a pretty clear message to people that you care about and people that care about you? Absolutely. Would maybe somebody for the very first time at that barbecue quietly wonder, Treaty 6, like what's the 6 for? Like I don't really, I haven't read much about that. I don't know much about that. A friend got in touch with me over the weekend to let me know that, that she's just signed up for and is taking, is participating in the indigenous, uh, the opportunity for that, that course at the University of Alberta. It's a free course. It got a big boost when uh, multiple Emmy-winning, uh, award-winning, uh, you know, actor, director, screenwriter Dan Levy, uh, son of the legendary Eugene Levy, of course, took it. 
as part of his personal journey and when he started talking about it, then the U of A tells us that they experienced just an overwhelming uh, amount of interest in that program. But but maybe somebody at your barbecue that hears the land acknowledgement might be prompted to learn a little bit more and enroll in that. And then what happens? The ripple effect of something small, I think, can be big. That's that's one thing we could do. Looking at, you know, where are we living? What because land is very much about who we are, where we are. Um, figuring and I mean Edmonton where we are uh, the wards have been given are now not numbers yeah they are given indigenous names so learning how to say that um, you know some people can be like it's hard I can't I, eh, meh. Yeah. and I mean I I have to admit that I get scared that I'm going to say it wrong yeah and I guess I um, I need to embrace the fact that oh yeah Sarah oh yeah you're gonna say it so very wrong. Well, we have so much to learn, right? Yeah. I always, I always answer back this, the, this poor fella. He, he's done nothing to deserve all of my attention. He's just a young kid. He's a, he, he, he's an upcoming star with the Edmonton Oilers. But I always respond with a name to any time somebody says, "Oh, my, my ward name got changed, and how am I supposed?" Ah. And I, and I say, "Yesapuliyarvi." Can you pronounce the name of Connor McDavid's right winger? Can you pronounce the name of the young Finnish winger that skates alongside the best player in the world? Yessa Puljajarvi. If you can pronounce that and it rolls off the tongue, then you can probably learn the name of your ward. Keith says, you know, in Claire's home, Alberta, we use Canada Day in part to celebrate our uh, immigrants, our new residents, and our rural immigration program. Keith invokes a very interesting word here. He says, I think we need to recognize our indigenous people as well as our new settlers. Interesting word. Great word. I like that word. I appreciate that. It's not that. a bad word. I love it. It's not a bad word. <laughs> Sharon, uh, one of our uh, amazing audience members, uh, Métis Heritage, Sharon shared with us many times, says the language is our culture. We are the language. Crazy James says, this is exactly why, your conversation, Ryan, this is exactly why residential schools, I mean, the, you know, the nuns there would beat kids when they spoke their language. The goal was to end Native culture. He says, they came closer than we realize, and the damage is massive. Heidi says, the idea that we're a cultural mosaic is a guise. I was, I was listening to a podcast where they talked about this. You know, we talk about, you know, the United States is a melting pot and, and Canada is a cultural mosaic. I'm not so sure about that either, Heidi. I mean, I think that's what we'd like to think of ourselves. Well, of course it is. But but that's the rewrite. I think it's the rewrite. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was reading this book. I, you know, did I, did I I didn't tell you about reading Danny the Dinosaur with Wyatt the other night. It's like this book was written, I think, in the 1950s. And uh, I mean, it's it's a long time. Uh, I, I remember reading it growing up. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's a familiar book. It'll be a familiar book to a lot of people. Um, it, it was written by Sid Hoff in 1958. And, um, uh, I'm going to use a couple unpopular words for a second to make the point, but this is a children's book. And so I'm, we, we, you know, why I don't know if he brought it home from school or brought it home from the library or whatever, but it's in there in the stack of books. And so we, we settled down to read the other night and you open it up and it's like, this is for kids to learn to read. So they read the words themselves. So it's like very simple sentences. It's like, you know, Danny went to the museum and then it's like Danny saw Indians and Eskimos and I'm like whoa right this is like page two 
of this children's book. And, and like 1958, so at the time, it's like that was the language, you know, people were using that language. But to me, even at that, so I'm reading. So first of all, I edit on the fly. Good for you. So, well, so I'm like, I'm like, Danny saw an indigenous man and a person from the north. And Wyatt, who's five, is like, he's like sounding out the words. And he's like, where does it say indigenous? And I'm like, mm. and I'm like, well, kiddo, I'm like, you know what? Like words that we have used, you know, many, many, many years ago when Papa was little, you know, are not words. And so I'm trying to like have this lesson on the on the fly ish. You know, and then I sort of talked about, the, you know, why it is growing up in Edmonton, Alberta. The football team has just changed its name to the Elks. I'm like, even our football team has mm. changed its name. I said, you know, that hat that you have? Well, there's a new, you know, but he's five, you know, and so you're sort of trying to find that. I know that parents everywhere are trying to find a way to be. And, and someone will say to me, don't you dare say age appropriate. You know, nothing's age. You know, what, what was age appropriate about three year olds bodies and graves at residential? Yeah. I get it. Trust me. You know, I mean, you know, this is the argument. One of the arguments around Alberta's curriculum is like, you know, the fact that residential schools basically don't even show up in this new curriculum to about grade five. People are saying if, if a kid is old enough to be ripped from its, you know, her mother's arms and, and taken to uh, a residential school and, and subjected to whatever everybody was subjected to there, the horrors of it, uh, then kids these days can learn about it at the same age. I'm inclined to agree. Mm. So I'm talking about this page in Danny and the Dinosaur and the, and the indigenous man and, you know, Inuk. And, and I'm also thinking, but it's bigger than just the language. It's the fact that they're in a museum, which was kind of like, mm. look what we found. Yeah. Like, look what we found and kind of kept. You know, we kind of kept it and, and we're going to put it in a museum because you won't see any of them anymore looking like this. Right. Like we, we put them in a museum because we basically did everything we could to ensure that the cultural, you know, whether it's the language or the traditions or the whatever, Food, yeah. everything. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying whatever in a dismissive way. I'm just saying in an all encompassing way that we've done everything that we could as a nation to intentionally kill that. I believe the word is genocide. Cultural genocide. And so I'm sitting there thinking, I mean, this book, just reading Danny and the Dinosaur, I'm, I'm like, this is a major thing here, right? Mm. And that's just one example. So I want to know where Real Talkers' uh, heads are at when it comes to National Indigenous Peoples Day. We'll be looking at your email. Sarah's monitoring our inbox. And, of course, we'll keep an eye on the hashtag as well, the live chat, too. This is an opportunity uh, right now to remind you that the teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge know that as the weather gets even better and as summer is now official upon us more and more of you are going to be looking to get outside to take your family out into the great outdoors this may be we hope fingers crossed the final summer of slight inconveniences and interruptions the last thing you want to do is experience any of those when you're pulling your trailer when you're getting your family's coolers and tents and everything out into your favorite place to spend a few days in the great outdoors the jeep brand and ram trucks have both been trusted for decades by canadians that know that quality time outdoors is the best time you can have as a family or solo for the best selection of Jeep and Ram. Look no further than Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Also want to remind you the team at Local Waste always has your back. Whether you're a small independent family business or a big player, they want to earn your business. Integrity is their core 
value. It's why they were sounding the alarm last week about one of their competitors sending out emails that were, well, quite frankly, pretty darn shady. Mikel and his team at localwaste.ca want to know, want you to know that they're here to answer any questions you may have, including steps that could prevent you from entering into bad contracts. They're all about growing your business along with you. You can check them out at localwaste.ca. Of course, today, a day of celebration as well when it comes to Indigenous culture, when it comes to traditions. We are thrilled that Chef Andrew George Jr. has agreed to make time for us today, a member of the Wet'suwet'en Nation in British Columbia, a participant in the first all-Indigenous team at the Culinary Olympic Games in Frankfurt, Germany. Chef George Jr. was head chef at the four-host First Nations Pavilion at the 2010 Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver, B.C. Chef, welcome to Real Talk, and thank you so much for making time for us today. Good morning, and thank you very much for having me. When it comes to to National Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, we'll talk about your perspective as a chef, uh, of course, today, but just as a person, as a human being, did today feel different? Did you wake up with a different thought process today than yesterday or than you will tomorrow? Oh, very, very much so. Uh, I think what's what's transpiring in the world is definitely a wake-up call. Uh, I think uh, what happened in uh, the Kamloops Wetmuk territory has been a long time coming, and, and uh, hopefully through all of these processes, the truth will come out and we can start moving towards reconciliation. Because one thing is you cannot deal with reconciliation without knowing the truth. Yeah, so very well said. That's a message that we continue to hear here from so many different guests on the show. And wrestling with that truth, I hope, is a commitment that people will be making today. Do you have uh, plans personally, uh, or, or will you be observing today in any particular way? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, the place where I work at, the Industry Training Authority, is acknowledging the 250 children in the state. Uh, we, we are acknowledging uh, the people of the Shwetnik uh, Residential School and stand in solidarity with them. So uh, we put together a series of videos for our staff to watch today and educate them more regarding, first of all, Indigenous Day, where it came from, and a little bit more talk about the residential schools and basically creating a dialogue why, why all this happened. Hmm. You, uh, I guess it was coming up on 10 years ago, uh, you were part of a delegation of chefs from 25 different countries around the world. Uh, this was a U.S. State Department initiative called Culinary Diplomacy, Promoting Cultural Understanding Through Food. We've had a great conversation today already talking about the importance of language when it comes to cultural traditions. Will you take us into cultural understanding through food? Yeah, perfect. And I appreciate that because this is this is where I think it's really critical about food and, and the commonalities that we have throughout the world is food. And by participating in such a wonderful event in 2012 on the culinary diplomacy, it was a process of breaking bread. Uh, breaking bread with chefs from all over the world, different backgrounds, very diverse group. And to me, that that's where this is all starts, is a dialogue through food and an understanding of each other. And to me, once we do that, I think it's a much better world uh, because I think every nation on this planet has something to offer. Uh, I think uh, overall, participating in such an event 
really gives you the opportunity to actually promote your culture through food, which is actually quite a way to do it. And, and when you sit at a table with 25 other chefs from all around the world and breaking bread and sharing the plate that you brought from Canada and having a dialogue with them and, and finding out the commonalities that we all have and, and the wishes that we all have, which was to basically uh, will live at world peace. Do you, uh, did, did you present uh, one dish? Uh, if it was just one, would you tell us all about it? I would love to hear about which one you put in front of your, your colleagues from, from around the world. Uh, we did a couple of, a couple of events. And, and the one I did in the Napa Valley was a juniper duck uh, because of the, the use of a red wine. So basically it's a smoked duck breast that I do and create a wonderful uh, sauce out of juniper berries. And uh, what I do is I debone the duck and take the bones and make a demi-glaze with it, and, which is quite a process. But then you put your duck breast in the smoker and, and nice lightly smoked, and then I seared it on a barbecue. And then you create a, a wonderful sauce with juniper berries and red wine, and then you add your demi-glaze, and you nappe it over top of the duck. And, and it has such a, the juniper berry actually has such a wonderful complement to the duck. That's probably one of my most favorite dishes I, I do. And another area we did in New York City, I did a braised buffalo rib uh, with a red pepper pesto, uh, which again is a, a basically paying homage to the buffalo herds in, in uh, the Great Plains. I'm not sure why I'm asking a chef to describe these fabulous meals while I've not even had breakfast yet. It's uh, fascinating to listen to, and my, my imagination's uh, absolutely running wild on what that must taste like. I can't even imagine. Your, your first cookbook, Chef, uh, published in 2010, A Feast for All Seasons, and you followed that up uh, in 2013 with a very popular modern native feasts. Before we start getting into what, what drives your process today... Or, or in putting these recipes together, would you help us understand as, as a young person uh, where your awareness or appreciation of the culinary arts and traditions came from? I think a lot of this came from me growing up off reserve and, and observing the very different lifestyle that we had. But growing up off reserve and growing, growing up very traditional, traditionally, uh, because we didn't grow up on the reserve, we had the basically live off the resources on the land. So that's how we grew up. Uh, grew, grew up fishing, trapping, hunting, gathering, and, and cooking some very simplistic foods, but actually very delicious. So uh, as everybody knows, probably the greatest chef in the world is your mother. Uh, so I take that in great pride on, on what my mother taught us how to cook. And, and again, growing up not being the richest family in the world, what she produced when you actually didn't see anything, but she'd come up with some absolutely wonderful meals and very tasty. That really uh, played with my mind, but not only that, because our food is actually very, very healthy. Our, our food is, is known as medicine. So it's preventative medicine. And uh, by learning how to cook through that, through my mother and my grandmother, uh, and the nutritional properties in the food that we produce. Uh, I thought it was a wonderful way to um, actually get, get into the cooking world 
promote our culture through food and bring it to the world stage, which we did, like you mentioned, in the 1992 World Culinary Olympics. And again, at the world stage at the 1986 World Expo in Vancouver, and again, the 2010 Olympics in um, Vancouver. You're, you're talking about like the, the, some of the highest profile events. I mean, the World Expo, the Olympic Games. I mean, these are some of the highest profile events in the world. Uh, what did that mean to you uh, as an indigenous person to be there representing your culture on such an enormous and prominent stage? Well, it was very hard to witness because of the world I came from. So when you look at it that way, I I seen it as an opportunity to um, to see the world through my forefather's eyes. And, and when when you talk about that, where I came from off reserve, uh, education was forefront for us growing up. Uh, even though we were traditional people, we were taught to take education, a traditional education or a Western education and pursue not just a job, but a career. And so I took the path of a tradesperson and became a, a cook and eventually a chef. But again, it was all based on foods. And when I, when I actually went to these events and had a look around me, and particularly the 1992 World Culinary Olympics, where there was 15,000 cooks from 52 countries all over the world, thought to myself, what a wonderful opportunity for, for a lot of our youth to um, to participate in something like this and, and um, promote their, their culture. And, and it's been 25 years and, and it's actually working. At that time when I went to the Olympics, I felt so alone. But nowadays through all the trades training at the um, industry training authority where I, I work and, and through all of the chefs here in British Columbia that are training indigenous youth, uh, I'm happy to say there is a lot of talented upcoming uh, youth coming through the system, including my son, who is a third year apprentice. He's doing fantastic. Uh, we're doing a show with the Nature of Things coming up, a documentary on the cycle of the salmon uh, based on our traditional food. And uh, uh, hopefully he'll take his rightful place in, in the apprenticeship world along with everyone else to, to promote our indigenous food. So that's what I've seen when I when I participated in these events is, is an opportunity. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about that, Chef. We, we, we talked uh, earlier today just about whether or not there's, you know, uh, optimism um, from these directors of the Office of Indigenous Languages that, that, uh, that language and culture can be uh, essentially reintroduced or that, that the next generation of young people will have that thirst for knowledge and the desire to reconnect with their culture. And that's pretty incredible to hear you talking about what you're seeing from young, up-and-coming Indigenous chefs. What do you think is is driving that? Do you sense uh, a real hunger from them? Uh, pun unintended, but it works, I guess. Is this based on a cultural reconnection, do you think? Yes, and I, I'd actually beg to differ on that. It's not really a reconnection or, or reinventing. It, it, it's always been there. Yes. Uh, the, the elders from the residential schools, and particularly mom, my mom, who who is a residential school survivor, held on to the past and their knowledge through um, stories. And, and it still exists today. And my mom brought us through what they went through in the residential school system, what we what we witnessed uh, through colonialism, through going through uh, elementary school, high school, and then post-secondary school. 
uh, and held on to the culture and the language. And she's not the only one. And it was preserved. Uh, but what I'm saying here is our parents purposely kept us from speaking our language to protect us. Hmm. Uh, back in that time, when I'm talking about the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but nowadays, they use their very, very strong on the language and culture, which is actually fantastic to see because uh, our people fought so hard to hang on to that because when you take away language, food, it takes away a culture and an identity of who you are. And that's why we stand strong is an identity. And when when I was listening to some of your podcast about acknowledgement, I think it's got to go a lot further than just a simple acknowledgement. It has to go down to acceptance. When you accept a person of who they are, it opens doors and talk about reconciliation and building a new world and, and moving in that direction. So. That's my thought on that one. You're so right, Chef. I mean, you, you even look at this is this is unrelated but related. But you look at the words that people used to use around, uh, you know, minority communities, or, or uh, you know, I, I would even say, for example, like we're here in Pride Month as well. And when it comes to the LGBTQ2S plus community, even people would use the word tolerance. And I remember the first time that I heard somebody say it's not tolerance. Tolerance is the word you use when like your neighbors have their stereo turned up too loud and you say, I will tolerate it for now. Tolerance is not the word, right? Love or acceptance is the word. Uh, and it, yes, and, and I appreciate that because what I get out of now, this generation, not only just the indigenous generation, I, I see this generation across the board is making a statement right now, right? Through Black Lives Matter, the Asian community, the Muslim community, the indigenous community. And what I'm hearing from the youth is, is enough's enough. Uh, this this generation is very educated. They're, they're gonna make a stand and it, it gives me hope in, in humanity. And hopefully this, this continues because they know how to treat each other. And maybe the older generation should take a lesson off out of these younger ones that, that, that are making a stand. Uh, my daughter is one of them, and she's extremely frustrated the world on, on how we treat each other, and it shouldn't be that way. And, uh, and I know she she's right along with her peers. I, I see that they all think alike, and it's, it's really good to see that they're, they're all standing together. So well said, Chef. When you when you've had I mean these opportunities you describe to to create in front of and to 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 you know obviously um, demonstrate your your abilities and share your culture with chefs and other people from around the world at these amazing events. Have you noticed when when you talk about indigenous cuisine um, and and uh, let me say I don't I'm trying to like avoid using a phrase that would be offensive because I know if I say indigenous Canadian cuisine people say. We won't prefer it, but I guess what I'm saying is from indigenous people um, that, that are, you know, demonstrating cuisine or sharing cuisine, um, you know, in the, in the territories and the lands that we know now as Canada. Let me put it that way. When you compare, you describe not just the nutritional benefit, um, but when you describe food as medicine, which I think is just an amazing concept and it, it, it's what would certainly set that cuisine apart do you see similar trends from indigenous chefs that would be indigenous to 
you know, wh- whether we're talking about Indonesia or parts of Africa, um, when you look at traditional cuisines from around the world, is there something that sets your traditions or your people's traditions apart? Or do you find common themes and threads when it comes to indigenous cooking from around the world? I think, uh, and that's a very good question, because when you look at the indigenous world around, all around the globe, uh, our food is based on sustainability mm. and freshness. And that's, that's what I see today. It's such a wonderful opportunity for the world to experience the brand new cuisine that has actually always been here. And when you look at indigenous cuisine, whether it's from Canada or one of our nations here in British Columbia, whether it's Wet'suwet'en or Teletan or, or Squamish, it, 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 it is fresh. And when you're talking about traditional food and indigenous food, it is beyond organic. And to me, that that's that's what we look at. And I'm very excited about today's generation of chefs because they have a very different outlook on food than we have. I was trained in the old French cuisine way, which I'm very proud of. And, and uh, But today's techniques are very different and the ingredients are very different because they're very fresh, uh, very uncomplicated recipes that you can very easily follow when you get down to the food itself, it is very healthy. It's an excellent way to produce it, and it's very, very fresh. So I'm actually very excited about the new food that's coming onto the scene. It's basically a world cuisine. Yeah. Do you have, like, is, is there one thing in particular? I feel like you've shared so much with us here, um, and, and your insights are so valuable. Is there is there one thing, uh, before I thank you for your time, is there one thing that you wish people knew more about or understood more about indigenous cuisine? I feel like you describing it as medicine, talking about that, that's that's obviously uh, a huge part of it. But is, you know, is I, I think when you look at indigenous food, I, I think it's very entrenched in the culture because everything that we do with our food has a meaning. And it's all based down to respect. It goes right into our feast halls, and, and, and when we talk about uh, nurturing our people in our feast hall, we look at everything as a gift for, from from what we call Hudaki, the higher power. So there's such a, a, a massive connection to the land, and everything that we take from the land, something is put back. So there's a big respect to that. So, so to me, that's what I, I think the world has to know, is it's not just a food. It's not just cooking. That's actually a way of life. And, and when you look at uh, the people from the Alaska Panhandle all the way down to Oregon, we all live the same life. It's the cycle of the salmon. And that's why the salmon is so important to, the, to our people. Uh, that's why the, the farm salmon affects our people. Because when you look at a farm salmon versus a wild salmon, when you look at a wild salmon, that's who we are. Uh, it identifies who we are and it's a way of life and that's why we fight so hard for our salmon because that's who we are we are the salmon people i've I've just started to learn i've really tried to to deepen my understanding of the the implications of all these salmon hatcheries on the west coast and the impact it's having on indigenous communities and the health of the wild salmon it's a fascinating i'm i'm really looking forward to that nature of things documentary we'll keep an eye out for that you, you don't have any sense of what that production schedule looks like do you you're, you just know you're doing interviews with your son for that no we're starting the shooting on july long weekend okay in which is the morristown canyon and it'll be aired in september on okay. cbc and then on jim uh, Jam CBC for about 145 countries around the world. 
that's an amazing, uh, amazing opportunity there. Chef Andrew George Jr., um, author of A Feast for All Seasons and Modern Native Feasts, a huge deal when it comes to the culinary scene uh, across the country here, a member of the Wet'suwet'en Nation in British Columbia. We're so grateful for your time and insight. Thank you for being with us here today. Yeah, thank you very much, and happy Indigenous Peoples Day to everybody out there. And uh, please take time for yourself, and uh, please uh, educate yourself about the issues regarding the residential school. And at the end of the day, take care of each other. Thank you very much. Beautifully said. Thanks so much, Chef. That's Chef Andrew George Jr. There's a, there's a common theme in the conversations we're having today. Take time, right? Listen, learn, understand, reflect. I mean, that's that's been what we've been hearing from every single guest today, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, we do want to note that if you were uh, looking to hear from Dr. Michael Hart, Vice Provost uh, for Indigenous Engagement at the University of Calgary, we're going to reschedule that interview. We're not only going to be talking about we're having these types of conversations on National Indigenous Peoples Day. Let's be very clear about that. These conversations will continue, and we'll look forward to that. In just a second, we're going to talk to Jessica Buffalo, who's a lawyer with Legal Aid Alberta. We're going to talk about uh, – there's, there's a new event, as a matter of fact, coming up on Thursday. Uh, it's an online event, which will make it way more accessible to, to people. But let's better understand Indigenous people and the law. What does restorative justice mean? Why do we need Indigenous courts? What is the reference to glad you? We're going to understand that better in just a moment. Right now, I wanted to remind you that you have an opportunity, and we're going to be talking about this tomorrow with a lot of workplaces, a lot of organizations talking about allyship, talking about inclusion. The team at PowerEd, presented by Athabasca University, has a course custom-tailored to help you broaden your understanding and expand your skill set when it comes to this. Check this out right here at powered.ca. You can see it on my screen. You can sign up here. These are online, on-demand courses. You learn at your pace. You learn at your convenience. Some of these courses, like Digital Wellness 101, it's like a two- to three-hour time frame to complete it. Some of them are more along five or six hours. A little, But the point is, it's not this monstrous, massive commitment you can understand more about allyship and inclusion by taking the time to invest in yourself, invest in your experience, and in what you'll be bringing to your home, your friend circle, or your workplace. Again, at powered.ca. Also, big shout out to the teams at Eden Landscaping. We check in with our partners from time to time. I ask Mike how he's doing. He's like, man, we are pedal to the metal right now. They've got all their crews out. This is the exciting time, right? I mean, yeah, sure, they sit down with their clients through the year, especially the winter and spring months when everybody's looking out the window imagining what the trees will look like again once they have leaves on them, right? once all the, 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 the annuals pop up or the perennials pop up and the annuals are installed. See, I've, I've figured out the difference there. I'm pretty proud of myself there. That's where my... That's where, but it doesn't make sense. I mean, perennial makes sense, but the annuals, wouldn't you think that they come up annually? Anyway, I, not, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Annually is when you... you Annually go shopping for That's your right. annuals. That's right, and you, you shell out lots of money. Yes, and if you sound like me when you try to talk about gardening and landscaping, it's time to visit landscapeedmonton.ca. The team at Eden Landscaping has been helping people like me who can talk a bit of game but have virtually near zero knowledge still have beautiful out yard, out, outdoor spaces. How do you like that? That's kind of like a it's like a long stumbly tagline, but it works. It works. If you're one of those people that can talk a bit of game, but actually 
Has Don't no have a green idea. thumb. Have no idea. <laughs> Two brown. No, that sounds rude. No. We're Stop. not going there. Eh. <laughs> Back it up and take the exit to landscapeedmonton.ca. Today, when it comes to conversations uh, around indigenous people and where the country needs to move, initiatives that are uh, not just important but imperative, a lot of people will be talking about restorative justice. It's been an ongoing conversation for quite some time. That's why Legal Aid Alberta is hosting this Thursday at noon Mountain Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, online. Uh, You can check out legalaid.ab.ca. Indigenous People and the Law, a guide to restorative justice and Indigenous courts. Jessica Buffalo, kind enough to make time for us this morning, a lawyer with Legal Aid Alberta. Welcome to Real Talk, and, and, and may I say a happy Indigenous National Indigenous Peoples Day uh, to you, Jessica. We appreciate you making time for us. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. And also, I'd like to say a happy National Indigenous Peoples Day and uh, also acknowledge the territory that I work and live on, Treaty 7 and Métis Region Number 3. Appreciate that. Why, why don't, may, I, may I start by getting a bit personal and then we'll get professional? What does, what does National Indigenous Peoples Day mean to you personally? Well, it's a day that I celebrate who I am. Uh, me and my family have some uh, some plans later on in the day, but it's something I look forward to every day, every year, uh, and it brings awareness to who we are as a people, and it's a way for us to uh, share our culture with uh, the rest of Canada. Wonderfully said. Can you take us into, what, when we're talking about restorative justice, we'll get into details, but overarching uh, when it comes to the theme of this or what we endeavor to do or why this is important, can you help us understand restorative justice and what it means? Yeah, so restorative justice, uh, you know, the first part of restorative is restore. And so it puts the individual in a place to repair that harm that they committed with their criminal behavior and also puts them, <clears throat> sorry, at the wheel to uh, heal. And that's what one of the initiatives uh, the Calgary Indigenous Court looks at. So it's restorative justice with a healing component. So how different is, I mean, how, how, how much of a transformation would this represent? Like when we talk about Indigenous court, how different is that from, you know, the way things have been done for so many years? Well, these courts weren't designed uh, for Indigenous people. And uh, this court is designed for Indigenous people. And it looks at uh, repairing that over-representation of Indigenous people in the criminal justice system, the over-incarceration, and it focuses on healing. So when a person comes into the court, they have to do an intake and they have to be ready to heal. And whereas in a regular stream court, they could just go through, plead guilty, get their punishment and be on their way. Uh, We focus on the factors that brought them to the court in the first place and try identify them and then try to repair them so that the individual does not come back before us again. So what have you seen? I mean, is is there enough uh, track record here for you to be able to say, hey, based on the numbers, based on essentially data-based analysis, this is working? Well, we don't have the statistics yet. Uh, the court opened its doors in September of 2019, but even during the pandemic, the amount of success that we have seen with our individuals, the amount of graduations that we have have identified, the amount the, our wait list for uh, blanket celebrations for these individuals is huge. So there is a need for these types of courts and there is a demand as well. Can you tell us about the, the, bl- the significance of the blankets and the celebrations? 
Yeah, so it's uh, uh, it's it's traditionally an indigenous uh, ceremony uh, that used to be done with the buffalo robe, and it was to honor uh, warriors, honor individuals who have uh, accomplished a huge uh, a feat. So. Um, that moved into a blanket once the buffalo robe sort of ran out. And uh, we use that in the court, except we don't call it a ceremony. We call it a celebration uh, just because um, practicing ceremony in court is not something that's, uh, you know, we've really spoken about in length. So this is, it, it sounds to me, my understanding is that, that there's a, there's an important voluntary element here. In other words, an individual uh, needs to feel, a, you know, compelled personally to participate in this, what what are you seeing at an individual level from people that that endeavor to become involved with this program or this approach to restorative justice? Well, what we were seeing before is that uh, people were taking responsibility for their actions. They were wanting to plead guilty, but there wasn't any mechanism in place to help identify those needs. So it's not a matter of people not wanting to take responsibility. They are fully able to do that but now instead of them just getting a criminal record and being on their way uh, we're actually assisting them with preventing further criminal records from happening or uh, you know preventing them from going to jail Jessica what would you what would you say to a person that that may have limited understanding of, of indigenous court or of the the premise behind it uh, maybe limited understanding of how it works that that maybe you know that for, for the for the person that's a black and white type thing you know it's it's crime and punishment you got to do your time big fans of mandatory minimums this sort of frou-frou approach where we're not putting people behind bars you know it's just not gonna work you know what would you say to a, to a critic like that well, in 1999, the Supreme Court of Canada decided uh, under Aaron Gladue that the Indigenous background needs to be taken into consideration of the Indigenous offender, and all alternatives to jail must be explored. That was about 21 years ago. Since that slap on the wrist that people think has happened, the statistics for Indigenous offenders have gone up every single year. So these courts are needed in order to prevent that because the harm that is caused on society by continuously sending individuals to to prison and having them come out, it's not going to benefit anybody, not the offender, not the community. So in a way, this is beneficial for everybody because it's repairing the harm done to the community, repairing the individual, and also repairing the, the communities that they come from. Um, and this all stems from the Gladue test. And it, the individuals have to understand that judges must take this into consideration. And despite that, statistics keep rising. When you when you describe, you know, you, you said it just a couple of minutes ago, you said people want to take responsibility for their actions and so they'll plead guilty. Do you think that there there may be other are there other contributing factors to to uh, an early guilty plea? Is it are there trust issues when it comes to the court? Do a lot of people just want to get out of there? Yeah, and uh, especially if this individual has been institutionalized from a very young age, if they're apprehended by child and family services, uh, if they lived in group homes, they know the game, and so they want to get out of it as soon as possible. They know that they're going to be if they're going to not plead guilty, they may be held without bail for two or three weeks. And so they know that if I do this now, I can get out and uh, be on my way. But what you see is that that impacts them down the road because let's say they, they take responsibility for a crime they didn't commit. Well, let's say three years down the line, they actually do commit that crime. Punishment is going to jump. And uh, that jumping is what is going to cause them to be in the system and not be able to get out. 
Jessica, may I ask about about your own personal heritage and and how it impacted or influenced, if in in any way, your your choice to to practice law. Yeah, so I'm Cree. I'm from Samson Cree Nation, uh, located in Musquatchies, and <clears throat> sorry, um, it's uh, I, I went into law school to assist my people, and I thought I was going to go into land claims and treaties, but uh, I had uh, the ability to uh, go into the Indigenous Community Legal Clinic at UBC, and that just changed my perspective. My first sentencing was done at Indigenous People's Sentencing Court, and just the change that I saw in that individual, he completely turned his life around, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help my people get out of this cycle of abuse, break those, break the trauma, basically. And how how many years ago was that, and, and what has your experience since then been like with regards to you know, what you believe is possible and what motivates you and what drives you? That was six years ago. Uh, so then I moved to Calgary and started working at Calgary Legal Guidance. And uh, I started um, working with the legal clinic at the Indigenous Hub. And then as soon as I heard about the Calgary Indigenous Court being started, I uh, made sure that I volunteered and was part of the, the planning for that. And uh, I mean, they, these courts and the Gladue factor has been so dear to my heart and I want to ensure that Indigenous people are elevated from these positions and the over-incarceration of Indigenous people stops and the over, I guess, the over-representation of them even in the criminal justice system is diminished. We, we had really interesting um, conversations a couple of years ago as part of this Me Too movement where I think that, that judges uh, ser- came under serious scrutiny when it came to how many of them had tried um, you know, people facing uh, charges around sexual assault, sexual abuse, uh, sexual misconduct, and, and then in, including in sentencing, um, how, how some of the comments that judges would make, et cetera. And there were some pretty high profile examples of judges, including in Alberta, um, that, that uh, really, I think, gave people pause to think when it, when it comes to the education uh, or the awareness of the depth of understanding that you see from the you know, on the bench, let me say, yourself as a as a, a lawyer with Legal Aid Alberta, do you believe that that when it comes to the judicial system, are the judges uh, up to speed enough, either on the Gladue factors or even more generally speaking? I can't speak for all of Alberta, but I know the Calgary bar, the Calgary bench is uh, is amazing. Um, I'm I I know that you will be well supported if you are appearing in front of a Calgary judge. Uh, the the Calgary court has almost indigenized other courtrooms. And uh, so they, they will talk about, oh, healing plans. Have you done your healing plan? Or or the, they will sort of use the models that we're using in CIC in the regular stream courts. And we're starting to see that. And that's very, um, I love it because these specialized courts, the Gladue courts should not exist. These All courts should run and operate this way. So if they are gonna move towards that way and these specialized courts no longer need to exist, that means that we have We've, we've accomplished what we were trying to accomplish. What's the work that is undone? I mean, when it comes to the to-do list, what is right at the top as, as far as you understand it? The to-do list? Oh, there's there's a there's a lot there. I bet. Uh, well, <laughs> well, one of the things you mentioned earlier on, uh, mandatory minimum sentences, I mean, those are something that still need to be addressed. Uh, Bill C-22 has been brought in, though, to sort of uh, – decrease that but that the mandatory minimum sentences and the starting points still have a huge impact on how indigenous offenders are treated and uh, those need to be reconsidered 
Um, we've been asking our guests uh, through the morning before we thank them for their time. And I know you've got a bunch that you need to get to today, Jessica. We're grateful that you're here. Uh, we've been asking our guests to, to give us something to walk with today or to give us something to think about or, or even an, a step to take, a, a call to action on National Indigenous Peoples Day. I, I may be putting you on the spot, but I suspect that you'll be able to, to issue a challenge to our audience on, on this in, uh, very unique day. Well, I challenge you to just show respect and show the grief that you felt for those 215 children that were found in Kamloops Indian Residential School and understand that a lot of those children did come home and with them, they brought huge trauma. And so we're asking for time to heal, time for respect. And uh, today is one of the greatest days that you can start implementing that. Hmm. Beautifully said, uh, Jessica Buffalo. Uh, is a lawyer with Legal Aid Alberta. We want to let you know. Actually, Jessica, before we sign off, why don't, why don't I get you to, to tell our audience a little bit about this? So this event's coming up on Thursday. That's this Thursday, June 24th, a few days from now, uh, from noon to 1 p.m. Mountain Time. It's an online event. You can learn more at Legal Aid Alberta. That's legalaid.ab.ca. You'll be able to find the link to the event there. Um, it, it'll be featuring you. You'll be speaking there as, along with Grace Auger, a lawyer, and justice navigator Stephen Shirt. Can you tell us about Thursday's event? Yeah, uh, it's going to be about restorative justice and Indigenous people. So we'll be talking about in depth about Calgary Indigenous courts, Sitsika and Satina courts, as well as, uh, you know, racism that's prevalent, prevalent in the law and how to move forward. Okay, and it's open to the general public. Anybody that wants to check it out? And it's free. And it's, and free. it's free. Love it. Jessica, thank you so much for this and a happy uh, National Indigenous Peoples Day to you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Oh, anytime. That's lawyer uh, Jessica Buffalo here uh, in the context of her role with Legal Aid Alberta. Lisa says, uh, you know, this also highlights this conversation. Lisa's watching us live on YouTube. Thanks for being here, Lisa. And everybody else says, you know, this really also highlights the importance of, of things like preventative measures. Um, addressing factors and issues that lead Indigenous people to be disproportionately involved in the justice system, right? Housing, health, education, and so many other factors, which is such a great point. And as Jessica mentioned, trauma. 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 Yeah. It's, you know, I heard this is like a, really oversimplifying it, but, you know, you, you hear people talk about the impact of residential schools, and Jessica makes such a good point that many of these children went home. But, you know, these children go home, their parents were traumatized, like their kids were taken from them, right? And, and then these kids, these, you can't say students, these kids, I mean, you can say students, but it's just, I, I go back to what Jagmeet Singh said, I know I keep referencing it, but he's just, in plain language, the leader of the federal NDP says, it just feels weird to call them schools, because uh, they were so much more horrific than what you would, you know, expect a school to be. You know, the fact that there's a graveyard outside all, nearly every one of them, if not all of them. But these students come home with, with really having the culture beaten out of them, mm -hmm. you know, taught, counseled, or beaten out of them. And then you expect these young adults to now understand, like with serious trauma, PTSD, et cetera, to understand now how to parent. And basically what you did was you took out like an entire, you just, you, you just drove this wedge, this massive, devastating, it's like driving a stake in an attempt to kill the culture of hundreds of different communities, of, of hundreds of thousands of people. And that trauma and the, the healing and the understanding of it, everyone is so eager 
or many people are so eager to be able to, let's just get past this. Let's just get over this. Let's, Moving on. Let's put this behind us. Let's yeah. move on. Let's understand what we need to do to move on. And the theme that I'm picking up on from the dozens of people that we've been talking to in the past number of weeks is that it's time right now to sit, to listen, to think, and to understand. But as a culture and as people, you know, we're so driven to be like, okay, and then when? So when does the listening stop? And when do we move on? Like, what's the deadline for the end of the listening? And then so when we can start with the healing? And then when, we're, when are we done with the healing? So then we can all move on. Right? And it's just, that's not going to be the case. And I think, I mean, as a culture, uh, like big, wide, big <laughs> Canadian, North American culture, to sit with oneself and to sit in your feelings, people will do anything but do that. You know, it's it's very uncomfortable to yeah. to, to sit with uncomfortable. Yeah, it's... It's kind it's, of the point. It, and precisely. You know, and so when people are like, I can't meditate, I, my head always goes all over the place. <laughs> yeah, and that's it's like, the point. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, you're supposed to watch it and then bring it back mm. and watch it. And so, yeah, this whole idea of sitting with it, sit with it, sit with the discomfort. Heidi says the idea of restorative justice versus... I don't know how to pronounce it. Retri- it's the, the is it the root of or it's it's one of the, of retribution retributive mm. re- retributive retributive. Why can't I say the word? Uh, justice matters so much. The wise person might say, Ryan, pick messages you can pronounce and read if you'd like to on the show. But I think that point is, it's part of the indigenous culture cultures, I should say, um, where it is about community and it is about bringing an individual back in. It's not about leaving them out, putting them out. They are now out forever. We, they're not allowed to be a part of our community anymore. So here's, but here's real talk. You know, real talk is also that a lot of people will think that this is absolute malarkey, mm. right? The real talk is that some people are going to say, um, if somebody stole from me or allegedly did this or was convicted of doing that, they should pay the price. And they should sit in a cell with no cable TV and they should think about what they did. You know, and it should be it should be, you know, you stole my whatever or you did this to me or that. um, And that should be seven years behind bars and a criminal record and learn your lesson. And once you learn your lesson, you know, then you won't do it again because you don't want to go back to jail. And then someone says, yeah, but that, you know, that 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 guy that stole your snowmobile. You know, did did you hear that he's going through this restorative justice thing where he's, you know, tapping back into his culture and better understanding and someone and some people will say that's horseshit. Mm. What, what, tapping into your culture like are you kidding me that tap that, into that, this yeah why don't you tap you know next time you come out you know and then right i mean there's, there's it's not like every single person is is going to be on board with this type of idea which is why i think that conversations with lawyers and advocates change makers like jessica buffalo are important like and 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 also where i think that proof of performance is also important now she says listen this is you know the indigenous courts haven't even been open for two years yet so it's plus it's, added a pandemic in the middle, et cetera, of et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But I bet you that with a meaningful commitment to this 10 years down the line or 15 years or 20 years down the line to be able to say, as we have invested as as people, as we have invested in these. I mean, this is a ruling all the way up to the Supreme Court, as she points out, the Gladue yeah. principles. This is, you know, we have we have made uh, a, a meaningful contribution to this. And now look. Like, I don't know Arnold's family's story, 
But I do know that Arnold on our live chat says my brother participated in a type of restorative justice when he was in trouble with the law. And it really changed his perspective on society and the law, says Arnold, and he never reoffended. Anecdotal. Yep. But that's one person's experience. I just when we when we talk about, you know, what are the data? What's the data? We need to wait for data to come in. I think we can also look at. Well, what has the performance been of the current system? And we're seeing, as Jessica noted, a continual increase. So I I would say, like, how is that, you know, law and justice, justice and order? How's that working for us? uh, It's like the war on drugs. It's like precisely all all types of things. Right. It's like you. I I don't mean to get too. I was going to say it's like the long gun registry. It's I don't mean to start invoking all these cans of worms and adding them to the mix. But you're right. We take big steps and people will say that doesn't even work. That that doesn't work at all. Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan's war on drugs. You know, what was it? Just say no or dare to say no, whatever it was called. The dare program. Like, how well did that work? (laughs) America's been losing the war on drugs for, I mean, arguably more than 200 years. But. But more in particular, you know, we it's time to take. But it's hard for people to wrap their minds around these types of things. Like, I, I, I promise I won't get too off track. But when you start talking about, for example, the war on drugs and the opioid crisis, it's why it's so important to have governments. I mean, my heart's broken over the course of the weekend. People should follow Dr. Elaine Hishka yes, on, on Twitter. You know exactly what I'm that. talking about. I'm going to look it up right now so I can uh, show uh, a graph to those of you that are watching on YouTube. And and, uh, and and of course, if you're listening on the podcast, I'll just describe for you what we're going to see here. But I mean, it's tragic. And the, the number of preventable deaths, and this is just in the province of Alberta, uh, over the past three months is is absolutely off the charts. And I mean, look at this. So so says uh, Dr. Hishka, who's just an amazing advocate and and, and uh as mentioned, a professional here in the field, Alberta quietly updated the substance use surveillance dashboard. This is a resource that's available online. She provides the link to it if you'd like to check it out. She's at E Hishka on Twitter, H-Y-S-H-K-A. Uh, K-A. Uh, we lost another 109 people to preventable drug poisoning deaths in April. Um, so that's three a day, approximately. Preventable drug poisoning deaths in April, just in Alberta. Now, I want you to look at this. So this was sent on June 18th. This was a few days ago. And if you look at where they start to spike, like where do they start to spike? I mean, they're, they're, they're really, it's really difficult to see these numbers. They go back to 2016. And these are, again, Sarah, you talk about numbers and how, how, just how yeah. cold it feels to just list numbers. These are people. These are sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, these are people. These are humans. But where does it spike? Like the numbers spike from from 97 deaths, which is horrific, in one month in May of 2020. And then they spike to 137 the next month, then 132, then 158, then 116. And they're way up. And you look at those spikes. And, and guess what those spikes correlate with? They, they, those spikes correlate. Uh, those are in direct correlation to the withdrawal of funding, the withdrawal of supports, the closure of supervised consumption sites. So this all comes back to having the confidence of elected officials and community leaders that listen to data and evidence and science. And this brings us back as well to the conversation about restorative justice. If the case can be made, if the Supreme Court has ruled on the importance of something culturally and otherwise, I believe that it's important as individuals to be able to get behind 
a program or an approach or an initiative that may seem somewhat unconventional that has wisdom behind it and that has the potential or even the promise of making meaningful strides in areas that demand to be addressed, such as the disproportionate representation of Indigenous people in incarcerated or involved in the Canadian justice system, right? I mean, the, the numbers are absolutely disproportionate. It demands to be addressed. And so we need to have these types of conversations. Whatever you think the solution is, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's the best way to make sure that we're going to see your message. We love the live chat. We love those of you that use our hashtag RealTalkRJ, but sometimes there's just a lot of activity on there, and it's easy for us to lose track. Before we get into positive reflections, before we sign off, I want to recognize um, a new team member of ours, yeah. That has done an absolutely remarkable job. She will be now making her official on-camera debut as our technical producer, Sam Brooks, has taken a few days away to be with his family. We have been so lucky um, to be hanging out with Emily Bashinsky, uh, Bashinsky, pardon me, right? Bashinsky. The soft Bashinsky, um, who's just nailed it, including a hell of a morning on the oh. troubleshooting front. Nothing to do with you. You were just dynamite today. Well, thank you. How were your first couple of days on board the Real Talk train? It's uh, been a really wonderfully steep learning curve, <laughs> uh, but I like a challenge. I think the one thing I've noticed is I could probably uh, stand to supply some sort of just pillow for me to scream in uh, mm. on days like today. But oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's a treat. So thanks for can having we get me a, here. Can we get a branded pillow? <laughs> yeah, we could get a actually a branded screaming pillow <laughs> might actually be a phenomenal idea. I think quite a few people would uh, go for that. Yeah. We, we could uh, we could reading Twitter a could, bit annoyed. It would it would Here's help me the real talk screaming pillow. It, it might help me make up for a previous pillow endorsement that I had for <laughs> <laughs> for several years where I. Uh, promoted a certain company that had uh, certain ownership ties to a certain president of the United States. Uh, I, I, I would I would appreciate a do over on that. I would appreciate a new pillow endorsement. Emily, you may have just cooked up something absolutely fantastic. I know people right now are going to be going. Hang on a second. Isn't that isn't that Emily from Bad Buddy? <laughs> isn't that Emily from BadBuddy.BandCamp.com? That's the very one. May I also reveal? that you are kind of the big cheese behind the scenes when it comes to sound engineering on the album that we have adopted, that we have that we are thrilled to have partnered with as our theme song, background music, extra music, and everything else. You were the technical magic behind Desolation Sounds, Ayla Brooke and the Sound Man. That's right. I engineered the record. I, I sang on the record. It's funny to, you know, it's a small world. It's all come it together here at the Real Talk uh, studio. I love it. Well, listen, <laughs> we're thrilled to have you on board. We're thrilled to have you on the team. Thank you for everything that you've mm -hmm. done over the past few days. And uh, I mean, because now it's kind of delicate and awkward, isn't it? Right. Because if I say we look forward to having you back, then Sam's going to be like, what's that supposed to mean? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, listening. I'm listening. He's, he's like, I'm still here, you guys, and I will be back tomorrow. So uh, FYI. Yeah. Uh, so thrilled to add Emily to the team. Um, this is a great opportunity for me to remind you that uh, right now, and, and, and maybe I have an email in my inbox. I'm quite disorganized. And so I bet you that the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park probably did send me an email saying, hey, Ryan, here's the deal. 
Here's the new deal for Real Talkers because the Father's Day cake promo went so swimmingly well. So many of you taking five bucks off your Father's Day cakes at, at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmont, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road that I, I can all, I can't quite guarantee, but I can virtually guarantee that we'll be doing that again next Father's Day. There's a new promo coming up. You know what you could do in the meantime if you're if you're going. I'm looking at the weather today, and and we are going to DQ today, just. Pull up to the drive-thru window, drop my name, and see what happens. Maybe they'll give you your order for free. Maybe they'll charge you a little bit more. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but you could pull up to the drive-thru window or or to the speaker, and you could just say, Jespo sent me. I'm a real talker. And And they may say, and? Or they may say, drive on through. And perhaps there's some sort of special treat. I don't know. rich hot fudge. Oh, my gosh. I have something I want to show you. I can't do it now. Okay. But I captured something on video this weekend. You know what? I'll tell you. Tomorrow, I will I will I will unveil it tomorrow on the show. Okay. A celebration of what the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park accomplished. In the meantime, head out there today. Tell them I sent you and see what happens. I love it. The team at Friesen Brothers, what a weekend for the Friesen Brothers in uh the South Edmonton store, that brand new one. And then of course Fort Saskatchewan and Stony Plain. If you live in those necks of the woods, I don't have to tell you about these stores. They're like, whoo, baby. Well, they were, they were absolutely, I mean, they, they were telling me the response to these Father's Day barbecue boxes off the charts. Real talkers, way to go. You can send me the photos of how your Father's Day barbecue went showing off those Friesen Brothers barbecue boxes. Make sure you use the hashtag RealTalkRJ. We'll show you a couple of those tomorrow. Friesen Brothers, 16 locations across the province of Alberta, proudly supporting Alberta producers, including Alberta Honey. You have to see the display at the new store in South Edmonton, but you know every Friesen Brothers is proud to be promoting Albertans. They have been that way for more than 65 years, Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. Also a reminder, the team at Kubi Energy, all this talk about sustainability, they are making that happen for people, whether it's residential, commercial, or industrial applications. they got these Tesla walls. I mean, amazing. They're Tesla certified. Not everybody is. And so are their installers, including electricians. Get the job done right at kubienergy.ca. Every Monday, our friends at Kubi Energy also get our week started off on the right foot. It's a little something we like to call positive reflections. Emily, why don't we start with a photo from James? We got this in. James sent it to us an hour before showtime today. He said, I know He said, I know I'll probably have to wait for next week to get this shot in. He said, I know it's an hour before showtime. But we said, hell no, James. This is unbelievable. That's not a street lamp. For everybody that's listening right now on the podcast, you can find Positive Reflections as a standalone YouTube file. Just go check out our YouTube channel. This is the moon last night. This is absolutely stunning. This sent in from James, who wishes everybody, all the Real Talkers today, a very happy summer solstice. Now, brace yourselves for these photos from Lisa. Lisa says, I wanted to share these images as a celebration of the beautiful night sky. I'm stealing this for my computer. Lisa sent it to us. I I guess it's. I'm not stealing it. I'm accepting the gift from Lisa. This is going to be my new wallpaper on my computer this is stunning she says a celebration of the beautiful night skies we have in the province of alberta says i sure know they make me happy lisa says i snapped both of these june 12th and 13th about a week ago east of high river in beautiful southern alberta lisa says thank you and have a great weekend this is the milky way and star trails as featured from frank lake that looks like monet doesn't it 
I mean, that second one. I would say more of a Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Oh, you're probably right. Like a Starry Night type yeah. of a thing. <laughs> yeah, Monet's a little more more floral, isn't? Yeah, I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. Work it, own it. Work it, own it. Yeah. I'm gonna say no. You know what you do? You just throw in little things like that where you say no. It's it's more of a Monet, and people who know know what I'm talking about. And then everyone kind of like, what, what is he talking about? And then they'll say, I guess I just don't know. Thank you, Ryan. You're welcome, everybody. And this from Kim, who sent this into Positive Reflections. She says, an entire year trying to graduate, trying to complete assignments, trying to learn in and out of school. An entire year living and learning under a veil of uncertainty, worry, fear, hope. A cycle repeated every time a teacher, class, or or even themselves, students isolated or quarantined. An entire year for some students, never seeing a classroom at all, not seeing their friends, not having new experiences for the last time while in the safety of childhood, not completing milestones like sports or other performances or ceremonies in a normal way, limited work and opportunity to earn and save for your fun and your future, and an entire year of worry about what comes next, accepting that opportunity and interest may be forever changed as a result of their pandemic year of high school. Well, here's the positive part, says Kim. This, the class of 2021, they did it. And whether they're ready to move on to the next steps in their journey or are taking time for a breather, class of 2021, you did it. Under extraordinary circumstances, no matter what comes next, Kim says, I'm so incredibly proud of my own graduating daughter, Eva, all her friends, and every member of the class of 2021. They're brave. They are discerning. They are thoughtful. Like Chef said today, they are leaders. They've sacrificed a great deal. Some of the most important milestones of their young lives for an entire year to preserve their families, to protect our communities, and they deserve recognition. Every student regardless of the measure of academics, accolades, or outcomes, deserves equal congratulations for managing this year the very best way they could. They are fierce. They are the best of us. Kim says a toast to the class of 2021. I'm right there with you, Kim. Thanks for that positive reflection. You can send us yours anytime during the week to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you label it Positive Reflections. Today, as we reflect, we do it together, collectively, under the spirit of National Indigenous Peoples Day. Thank you for being part of this broadcast. Thank you for being an engaged citizen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow morning.